Good morning. Ladies, I want you to imagine being Mangayama Yaramedi, a 78-year-old woman from Guntar, India. She had her first child, actually twin girls, Rama and Uma, on September 5th, 2019. She was 74 years old. Far as we know, in modern times, the oldest woman to carry children to term and have live children. Her husband's name was Raja, and they got married in 1962. For 57 years, they wanted children, and they were unable to have them, and particularly in their part of the world, in their society, it was a special stigma to not be able to have children. And yet through the science of in vitro fertilization, she was able to have those girls with her husband, who was 83 at the time, in a nursing home. Fitting, isn't it? That's amazing on one level, but on another level it's really not so much because we realize that there was a woman who entered motherhood for the first time in her early 90s. And that millennia before the advent of science like IVF. The woman that we're looking at today was someone who had to wait some time before she had children. We have no reason to believe that she had to wait near as long as Mangayama or Sarah, but the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 7 that her womb was closed year after year. That's going to change with the birth of Samuel. But before we get there, we don't want to miss out on what's taking place in her life. When we examine the life of Hannah, we see her as an example of motherhood. And yes, I'm preaching this on a day in which so much of the world is honoring those who are mothers. And as they do so, it may make you, as we look at uh, Hannah's case, it may cause you to think about on Mother's Day, we've even prayed about it, the woman who gave us birth. And I realize in my ministry life that I've encountered some for whom that is not a very positive thing who may not have had a mother that they have or had a good relationship with. In fact, sometimes to the contrary. And yet by virtue of the fact that we're here, at least on that level, we can be grateful for a mother who brought us into this world. For a great many of us, and those of us who still have our mothers, it is a blessing to us to think about the influence that she has had on our life. And I realize as I preach about mothers that there are only some of you in this audience today who are mothers, only some of you who could be mothers. But I believe that the story that we're looking at today has impact and meaning for all of us, regardless of who we are. In fact, it begins with Elkanah, who was just described for us as the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Toth, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And Elkanah would go every year and would worship and would sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. And he went to Eli's sons, who were priests of the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas. And when he went, he would come and bring portions of the sacrifice. He would bring them to Penina and to his, uh, her sons and daughters, but he would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. 
When we look at the background of this story, it certainly is the preface to all that we see in the rest of the Bible about Samuel and his life. Did you know that Hannah only appears in two chapters of the Bible? And when we think about Hannah, there are a lot of different directions our mind might go. If we look into the text, we may see this fact, this idea that we see about Hannah's heart. It's mentioned three times, and yet so much of the text deals with her heart. When you think about the heart of Hannah, she is a woman who is standing in front of a door that is closed. You ever stood in front of a door that was closed? And you wish like anything that it was open? Or maybe you found yourself asking God, please open or close that door according to your will. Whatever it is that you want, have it your way. As we think about Hannah and what's presented to us in Scripture, I want us to focus on her heart. And it was her condition of heart that helped her through both the ups and the downs of her life. And as we look into our own lives inevitably filled with ups and downs, I believe there are at least three things that we can learn about our own heart and how they should be when we face those struggles in life. Let's look at Hannah's heart together today. And as we do, the first thing we find is that Hannah's heart was sorrowful. One of the remarkable things about Hannah's life is that from beginning to end, she is depicted for us as a woman of faith. She is a woman who the Bible speaks only favorably about. And as we look at her, we see that when you look into her life, not only was she a woman of faith, but she was a woman whom God favored. When you look in the the latter part of her story in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you find that the Lord had remembered her, chapter 1 and verse 19, and the Lord visited her, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 21. But despite her faith and God's favor... There is no doubt that she struggled with difficulties and problems in her life. In fact, as you look at the story of Hannah in those two chapters, we might say that at least half of the chapter of her life was filled with sorrow and anxiety. When we look and see what she endured, we find all the heartache that she went through. First of all, her, the other wife of Elkanah was a rival to her, and she needled her. Just mercilessly. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6. And it was so bad that in her distress and in her grief, she couldn't even eat. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 7. We see that she was filled with distress and crying in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10. And so great was her grief, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 11, that when the high priest Eli looked at her, he thought she must be drunk. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 13. She was filled with distress. She was filled with grief. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 16. And even in the bargain that she struck with God, that if God would just open her womb, that she would give that son to God. God fulfills that request, and she goes through that nine months of pregnancy knowing that ultimately she was going to give up that child back to the Lord, away from her care physically, when once he was weaned. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 24. I think sometimes what happens in life is is that we say that if I'm doing everything right, if I'm serving God as faithfully as I can, I ought to be free from problems. And yes, I will avoid some problems that come in hard living. 
But Hannah is but one of a series of examples of those who show us that even in living a righteous life, there's going to be adversity, there's going to be heartache and problems. A few years ago, I was helping Gary and Chelsea move to Hope, Arkansas, and I was on my way back, and I was in northwest Texas. And there was a ferocious storm brewing. It was big, the skies are bigger out there, and the entire sky was black and dark. In fact, just a couple of miles southwest of me, as I was driving past that area, there were three storm chasers that were killed chasing a storm that I was trying to get away from. You know, storms, those kinds of storms especially, are ferocious. They are fearsome. And in fact, they are so often used symbolically. When we think about the the fascination that we have with storms, not just storm chasers, just look at Hollywood, all the way back to The Wizard of Oz, we have had movies that focus on the terror of storms. They symbolize sorrow and fear. You know, it's even true in the Bible. When you look at like the psalmist in Psalm 55 in verse 8, he refers to his condition as a tempest. Or you look at Job and Job says in Job 30 in verse 22, you dissolve me in a storm. What can happen when we are in the storms of life is that it can blind us to the goodness of God. When you look at Hannah, you see a woman who is plunged into sorrow. And we can relate to that because when we find ourselves struggling to see the goodness of God, it's harder when our eyes are filled with tears. It can blind us because of the confusion, the fear, and even the anger that we feel. We may be like David in Psalm 6 and verse 7 who says that my vision is blurred with grief. Or to say with Job in Job 6, 2, and 3 that if I could weigh my sorrow with my calamities, it would be as heavy as the sands of the seas. When you look at Hannah in the storm that she's going through, something that she wanted desperately and she wasn't getting, what did she do? What she does helps us when we find ourselves struggling in the times of our difficulties. When you look and see what she does, we can do the same thing. When we look at what she did, we can seek help from others like she did. And you know what? There are some people sometimes when we're struggling who aren't going to help us. There's no way Hannah's going to turn to Penina and say, hey, can you help me through this grief? Penina's responsible for at least a lot of the grief that she's feeling. But you know who she has in her life? She has Elkanah, her husband, who says, am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, maybe that's not the right thing to say in that moment, but he's saying to her, I want to be there for you. She also has the high priest of God. She has Eli. And of course we know she has God. When you're struggling through the difficulties of life and you're in a storm of sorrow, what do you do? What you can do is seek help for others. Another thing that you can do is you can search for the possible benefits that are to be found in that. In Psalm 66 and verse 10, the psalmist says that I can be refined like silver is refined. This is not to minimize the hurt and the sorrow that she's feeling, but what she's going to do shortly is is that she is going to look and find God as an opportunity to strengthen her relationship with God as she reaches out to Him. But another thing we can do when we're in a time of sorrow is that we can see God's power to help us through it. A remarkable thing, if you're a Bible marker, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and I want you to notice how many times the word Lord is there. And it's not just the word Lord. Now there are a couple where it is referring to humanity. 
But the 23 that I'm pointing out to you are Jehovah God. God's personal name. And Samuel, inspired by God, the one who will ultimately be born, points God's name out 23 times in 28 verses. And the point is that even in the times of sorrow, when maybe Hannah couldn't see it, God was there. He was all over the situation. And she sees that as well. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, look at her prayer, her song that we'll look at more deeply in just a moment. And she looks and she sees that God has indeed helped her. He's been with her in the darkest moments of her life. And whatever the trial is you're going through, no matter how low you are in it, will you realize at the lowest point that God is all over the situation. He is at work in it even when you can't see it. But also we see what she does is that when you're going through this, what you can do in your times of sorrow is shelter in the Almighty. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 91 verse 1 and 2, to find shelter beneath the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. What she does is is she turns to Him. She doesn't turn away from Him. Of course, we know all the passages that tell us that being in this life, we're going to have sorrow. It's inevitable, no matter how faithfully we strive to live. But as we look at this wonderful woman, this woman who would ultimately become a mother, Hannah, we see that her heart was sorrowful. And as we live in this life, we need to understand that it's going to be a part in seasons of life, a regular visitor into our lives. It's what we do with that. That's so important. And what I want us to notice in those last two observations is what does Hannah do in the difficult times of her life? When I look at her heart, I see that not only was it sorrowful, I see that Hannah's heart was prayerful. Of all the things that she could have done, that she might have done, she turns to God for help. When I look at my own lives, I realize that that's sometimes not what I do. Sometimes when I'm struggling in my difficulties, I turn inwardly. And I begin to say things to myself, and a lot of what I say to myself isn't even true. I say things that that cause me to feel sorry for myself and to get so self-absorbed in what I'm going through. Sometimes what we're apt to do is we're apt to look outward. And when we look outward, we look in the lives of others. We don't know the dirty details of their lives, but from what we can see, it looks like everything's going their way. And so we feel envious. Why don't they know what it's like to go through a trial like this? And a lot of times what we do is we look downward. We look into the lives of those that are in our circle. And we wonder, why aren't they comforting me in the midst of my loss? And we look down on them. But instead, what we should do is we should look up to God. And that's what Hannah does. Do you want to see what's in the heart of a faithful child of God? Somebody who's going through difficulty in the depths of the sorrow. Turn to God. And I want you to look at what she does. You know, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 has been called the Old Testament Magnificat. I want you to compare it sometime with Luke chapter 1 and what Mary says in song. Some, in fact, maybe over the top of your Bible, it says the song of Hannah but it bears the characteristics of a prayer. And there's much to learn from her prayer when we're struggling that can help us. The first thing about her prayer is that it was emotional. You notice what it says that when she prayed to God, she wept bitterly. She was in great distress. She's only in two chapters 
There are 1,189 in the Bible. And two chapters is impressive when some characters get very little space, maybe even only a mention, like those in Elkanah's genealogy. But in two chapters, we see almost all of it, at least half of it, is her engaged in prayer to God. And God writes down, He records attributes of her prayers. I wonder if God wrote down a description of my prayer life, what would it look like? Flat, emotionless, self-absorbed, half-hearted? Or would it say that my prayers are engaged and energetic and passionate? You know, the Bible chooses to tell me about Jesus' prayer life. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up strong cryings and tears unto the one that was able to save him from death. When we look at his prayer life, it was passionate. When we look at her prayer life, we see her pour herself out. I wonder how much greater good would be done in the kingdom of God if our prayers were characterized like Hannah's were. We see it was emotional. But this is a challenging one. It seems to me also that her prayer was transactional. In the very basic level, when she comes to God in prayer, she makes a vow to Him and she says, God, if you will remember your maidservant and not forget your maidservant, but will give unto your maidservant a son, I will give him to you and will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. You know, there are some things that we can do to show God that we're serious in our prayer life. In one of our adult classes last week, Derek talked about one of the things that we can do to show God that we're serious, and that's to fast alongside of our prayer. But another thing that we can do to show God that we really mean business in the thing that we're talking to Him about is that we can bow to God. Have you ever gone to God in the depth of your misery or your struggle? As you find yourself in the storm, a storm that's assaulting your body or your bank account or your relationships or your spiritual strength, and you made a promise to God that if He will get you through that, that you would do whatever it was. Will we remember Psalm 78 and verse 11? Pay your vow to the Lord God and fulfill it. But I believe we have so much biblical precedence. Individuals who said, God, I'm serious. And if you will do this, then I will do Whatever it is that we say. But another thing about her prayer life is that it was continual. If you'll look in verse 12, it simply says that Hannah continued to pray to the Lord. And the word that is translated continual there is often translated multiply to make great and to grow. You know in Genesis and several occasions where you see the phrase be fruitful and multiply, this is the word. It calls to mind a, a situation in life, not unlike the woman that Jesus mentions in a parable in Luke 18 and verse 5. It's this widow who goes to this unjust judge and she pleads with him to act in her favor. And because of her persistence, the unjust judge relents. The purpose of that parable is Luke 18 and verse 1. Jesus said this parable that men ought always to pray and not faint. That's Hannah in the midst of her struggle and her trial. She finds herself praying to God, pleading with Him on a continual basis. God is not going to be wearied by our prayers. He wants to hear from us. He knows everything about the trial and the difficulty, and He wants to respond favorably. But I also want you to notice with me that her prayer was truthful. When you look after Samuel is born, in verse 26 through 28, she goes back up to Eli, and as she visits with him, 
And she has clarified earlier, remember when he says you're drunk? She says, no, I'm praying to God. I've asked him to do this for me. And he says, may it be according to your word. She goes home. God actually does hear and and favorably respond to that prayer in the way that she has asked. And she comes back. And she says, I'm the woman who stood by you. And I've done what God has said. I have dedicated him to the Lord. You know, our prayers need to be filled with integrity. You know what's true of her is that she made a vow and she fulfilled it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. We need to be truthful in our prayer life. When we do make those promises, we need to be able to stand and say, I did what I told God I would do. Now, what is it that we can learn about Hannah's prayer in addition to what we have seen? What does she teach us? What does she show us in the conduct of our spiritual life as children of God? I believe it's the principle of Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks it shall be opened unto him. What that does not mean is that if we can't have children, if we pray to God, he'll open our womb like he did with Hannah. As we approach God with any request, we need the heart of Jesus who said, not as I will, but your will be done. Luke 22 and verse 42. With an acknowledgement and awareness that God is one who knows what is best and is going to do what is best. He is going to do His will in His perfect way. But that as we look and see, He's going to provide what is best and He wants to hear from us. In our time of trial. You know, Albert Einstein came to the U.S. from Nazi Germany. And he bought an old two-story house within walking distance of Princeton University. And once there, he entertained some of the most distinguished people alive in his time. And they came and they visited him. And when they visited, they would talk about everything from physics to human rights. But he had another frequent visitor. A ten-year-old girl named Emmy. Emmy heard that there was this kindly old man who had bought this house and who knew a lot about math. And here this fifth grade girl was and she had arithmetic problems that she couldn't solve. And so she decided she would go to Einstein, not knowing really who he was. And she would spend every day and he would help her. A couple of weeks later, one of the neighbors found out what Emmy was doing and went and told on her, told Emmy's mom, She was aghast, embarrassed, mortified. And so she goes and she tells her daughter, don't go back and do that again. And she goes quickly to apologize to Einstein. And in the middle of her apology, he cuts her off. And he says, she has nothing to apologize for. Emmy loves to learn. And I love to teach those who love to learn. You know, I think we could make the argument... That when Hannah lived, that there were people that were more important than she was. And of all that was going on on the earth, when Hannah was petitioning God, there were probably things more important than a woman having her womb open to have a son. But of all the things that may have been going on in the world in that generation, this is what God chooses to record for us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, When I think about in the Lord's church, or I think about in this world, all the people, I'm not near as important as a lot of other folks. 
and, and the thing that's weighing me down, it can't be near as important as a lot of the other things that are going on around me. You know, something that was said to me for the first time not that many years ago is something that has really stuck with me. If it's important to you, it's important to God. And not only that, when we think about the one that we're going to for help, he has so much greater wisdom and so much more power than Einstein. And he says, I want you to come because I want to help. When I look at Hannah's heart, it was full of grief. But she does the right thing. In the midst of her sorrow, she's prayerful of heart. And God responds. But we also see that her heart was faithful. When we get to that second chapter, we look at verse 1 through 10, we see a beautiful prayer that's prayed. And as she prays, she acknowledges some things. As you can look through and see that prayer for yourself for the sake of time, I want us just to notice four things that she says in essence in that prayer. The first thing she says is God is great. If you look at verse 1 and 2, she says, I exalt the Lord. She talks about His holiness. She talks about His power. Down in verse 3, she talks about His knowledge. As she begins that prayer, which God has favorably answered, she doesn't forget to praise the great God to whom... She had approached. She says, God is great. But she also says, in essence, I know God is aware. For her, the big struggle, the central part of this, as great as a closed womb, was a rival who was proud and arrogant and who was needling her and was persecuting her. She understood that God was aware of that. And he said, you bring the proud down. You make the arrogant low. She also indicates in her prayer that she knew that God is active. I want you to notice all the actions that are ascribed to God. God makes, He kills and He makes alive. He brings down to Sheol, He raises up. He makes poor, He makes rich. He lifts the lowly and the humble. God has not stepped back from our daily lives. God is intimately involved in all that's going on. God is active. He is working in our lives. Then he also, she also indicates in her prayers that God is just. In verse 10, she sees the justice of God. She knows that God is going to act. How is God going to respond to the trial and the difficulty that I'm facing? How is God going to respond to the prayer that I'm praying to Him? I don't know that, but I know in the spiritual sense that God is just. That Abraham in the first book of the Bible was right when he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? But I want you to notice one other thing, that not only was she faithful with regard to God, but she was faithful with regard to Samuel. When you look at this woman, what you find is a woman who gives her son the greatest advantages that she could. Moms, let me speak to you for a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like to promise God, if you'll give me a child, I'll let somebody else raise him. Not just somebody. And we don't know how far and wide Eli's poor parenthood was known, but a father like Eli was going to have charge of her son, the one who raised Hophni and Phinehas. Read the rest of chapter 2 and see what a train wreck they were. But she wasn't leaving him in Eli's care. She was leaving him in God's care. She brought him to the house of the Lord before the servant of the Lord. Moms, dads, and those of us who have influence on children around us, what can we do better than to point them to the house of God, to the people of God? God wants us 
to be faithful with regard to the influence and the example. Not to isolate them from good spiritual influences, but to bring them deeper into them. As we look at Hannah and her faithfulness, she gave him so many spiritual advantages. If you'll look in chapter 2, he ministered before the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 19, he grew before the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 21, he grew in favor with God and man. Chapter 2 and verse 26, he ministered before the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he was there before the Lord, uh, speaking the word of the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 19, he was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 20, he spoke the, uh, the, word, the word of the Lord by the way of the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 21, at first, this was Hannah's desire for him, but it became his desire. The people around him were making terrible choices, and yet he, by her influence, was making the right kind of choices that led him to be a leader. Every year, according to chapter 2 and verse 19, she brought him a little robe. Every year he was a year older, and she brought him that new garment. Have you thought about the day in which she presented it to him? It had to have been the best day and the worst day of the year for her. Best day because she got to be reunited with him, if only for a day. The worst day because she had to say goodbye. I'm sure she cried all the way back home. And yet what she did was she sought the best spiritual conditions for him. Her heart was faithful. A heart faithful to God is going to be faithful in the other relationships of life. You know, Hannah teaches us some valuable truths. Hannah teaches us that a door that is closed today may be open tomorrow. Or maybe teaching us that God's going to open a better door. The point of this is that if your faith is not, that if you're faithful enough and you pray hard enough, that if you've not been able to have children, you will have children. But you will see God's presence and God's power at work. When we look at Hannah's life, what we see is that all hearts will have sorrow. All sorrowful hearts should be prayerful. And all prayerful hearts should be believing and that believing hearts will be blessed. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of all those that diligently seek him. I don't know what struggle it may be that you're dealing with. I don't know how it will be resolved. But if you will trust God's will, and you will bend your heart to his will in prayer, and be faithful in your service to Him, that however that thing works out, God has promised you something far greater than the sorrows of this life. It begins with your submission to His will. A, a, a God who loved you so much that He proved it in a way that could not be exceeded by giving up His only Son out of love for us on the cross. If you've not yet responded to that great love and given your life to Him, we're going to sing a song to encourage you. If you need to become a child of God, I know probably maybe some of you have reservations. You're waiting to get ahead of everybody else in line in order to eat at the restaurant because it's Mother's Day. We'll be okay having to wait 30, 45 minutes, won't we, if we have to wait for somebody to be baptized? Or maybe you're a child of God who's struggling. You're at the end of your rope of faith and ready to let go. 
You've tried it on your own. You've looked in. You've looked out. You've looked down. But you've not yet turned it to Him. It would be our honor to pray with you and for you. If we could be an encouragement to you in your spirit walk. If this is your invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?